I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And I'm Rory Spiegel. And this is the Journal Jam Podcast. Why ED regional nerve blocks for hip fractures? This isn't a classic EBM topic. It isn't even a medical myth. I mean, we love covering myths on Journal Jam. It's not even particularly exciting. So, Justin, why this topic? You know, I think this is a good topic for a couple reasons. And I think the evidence is messier than what we thought when we originally went at this topic. But what we really wanted so, so often in evidence-based medicine were negative. So I think this is a, a good topic to show us that how evidence-based medicine can have, you know, a real positive impact on our, on our patients, even if it's for what seems like a pretty small question. And then second, because the evidence isn't uh, perfect, I mean, really no evidence is perfect. I think this is a really good example of evidence-based medicine in the real world. So I think it gives us a good opportunity to just talk about what we do in the face of imperfect evidence, basically in every day in our practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in this case, you know, pain management is all the rage these days with the opiate epidemic still raging. And we shouldn't expect zero pain in all our emergency department patients. But oligoanalgesia is still a problem in the emergency department, especially in our older patients. Yeah, I understand that there's a few pretty good papers showing exactly that, that you know we don't do a great job with pain control, especially in the elderly. And hammering an 87-year-old with multiple doses of morphine or hydromorph until they get their hip fracture fixed in 24 or sometimes even 48 hours, you know, they might be a wee bit demented to boot. It's really a ticket to delirium, which, as most of us know, has surprisingly high in-hospital morbidity and mortality. Yeah, and the the NSAIDs, acetaminophen, the kind of stuff that we use once a long bone has been immobilized, probably just aren't going to cut it here. Now, I don't know if I've told you guys, but this is one of my big pet peeves. When I was 13, I broke my femur, and it wasn't immobilized. And for four days while they were waiting to transfer me, I got no pain medication except for uh, Tylenol. And let me just tell you, from a patient standpoint, that is just not adequate. So it's really important that we provide good pain medicine to our patients. You know, the immobilization part is really important, but hips are hard to immobilize. And I think it's, it's once you start moving them, it's a big problem. I think we've all seen that patient who has that broken hip, who's not that bad when they aren't moving, but they just hit the ceiling in pain as soon as you move them, even the slightest bit or bump their stretcher. Instead of giving opioids for a little old lady with a hip fracture, why not just give a regional nerve block? And that's going to be the big question we ask. Yeah, it makes sense that if we simply take out the local nerve supply to the fracture site for a few hours with a relatively quick benign procedure, will prevent a whole lot of suffering for the patient. Makes sense to me. Yeah, me too. All right. So before we dive into the literature on regional hip blocks, let's sort out what exactly this procedure that we're talking about. There's actually three types of regional nerve blocks for hip fractures. First, there's the traditional nerve block, right? The sort of classic femoral nerve block, which involves injecting local anesthetic directly around the femoral nerve and the neurovascular bundle right in the groin. There's also the three to one nerve block and the fascia iliaca block. Rory, how are these other nerve blocks different to the traditional femoral nerve block? So in theory, there's a few nuances that separate them. The, the three-in-one femoral nerve block, which is basically the traditional femoral nerve block plus anesthetic to the obturator and lateral femoral cutaneous nerves, 
in theory. And this is done by putting a bit of pressure just distal to the needle as you're injecting. And the last type of nerve block called the fascial iliacus compartment block is indirectly anesthetizing the same three nerves as the three-in-one block, except the fascial iliaca block, you inject a larger volume of dilute anesthetic lateral to the femoral nerve in the fascial iliaca compartment and hope that it diffuses to all three nerves. All right, Rory, you keep on saying theoretically. Well, why do you say theoretically? Well, I think we're going to see, you know, this is all built on anatomic theory and and the in the idea that if you get these three nerves and these techniques you'll be able to induce some kind of pain relief and we're going to one take a look and see if there's actually data supporting that and then kind of question does it matter which one of these three nerve blocks that you do all right so just to map out the rest of the podcast we're going to ask two key questions justin what what are those two key questions well i think the key questions here really the first one is obviously does a regional nerve block for a hip fracture help our patients? Is it effective? And that can be broken up into a few subcategories. And so one, does it effectively reduce pain? Second, does it decrease opioid use, which is something we probably want to see a lot in in our elderly patients? And then third, are there any other major patient-oriented outcomes? So delirium is very common among hip fracture patients. Is that an outcome that we could change with these nerve blocks? The second major question, aside from efficacy, is harm. So are these regional nerve blocks safe when you compare them to standard pain management. All right. And then after that, we'll discuss some of the sort of practical, political, and logistical aspects of regional hip blocks, like should we give a dose of opioid prior to x-ray or should we just do the block before the x-ray in patients with a high pretest probability? Other things like how can we minimize complications when we do a block? Is the ED doc the best person to do the block or should we have anesthesia come down to do it? So we'll get to all these questions a bit later in the podcast. So Justin, let's dive into the literature then. Yeah, all right. So I think we'll, we'll do this one a little bit differently. You know, on the Journal Jam, we really like to usually do a deep dive where we go in and we talk about every single paper that we can find just basically so that readers can make up their own minds, can decide for themselves. And I think that makes a lot of sense for the complex uh, topics that we've covered before, like thrombolytics in stroke. But this topic isn't nearly that complex or that controversial. So I think we can get a really good sense of the literature just by reviewing the biggest, uh, most recent systematic review. Actually, this was the review that basically changed my practice. It was the one by Ritke and colleagues entitled Regional Nerve Blocks for Hip Fractures and Femoral Neck Fractures in the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review out of CGEM in 2016. How about, Justin, you go over the methods, and then, Rory, you can give us the results. Yeah, so this is a a systematic review with pretty good methods. They had a good CERC strategy. I think we can trust that they found all the papers available. I've done the same search, and I can't find any more papers. What they were looking at was randomized controlled trials of adult patients who had either an acute hip or femoral neck fracture. And they were looking at patients who had a single nerve block done, which is compared to some anesthesia, they'll use a catheter. So this is just a single injection nerve block done sometime before their their operation. So that includes some emergency department studies, but also some anesthesiology studies. Uh, They used any of the three blocks that we talked about. So it could be a femoral nerve block, a three-in-one or a fascia iliaca block. Okay, so all three types of regional nerve blocks uh, were represented. Justin, in terms of the control groups, 
Were they comparing regional nerve block to one dose of morphine or multiple doses of some other analgesic or whatever the doc chose or, or what? Like what was a control group? So the studies were a little bit uh, heterogeneous, but the, the most usual control group was just standard care. So whatever the doctor wanted to use to control pain, and usually that was with morphine. And then across the, these trials, the primary outcome in almost every trial here was just, did the nerve block reduce pain and how was that reduction compared to standard care? So reduction in pain is the primary outcome. Did they look at the other important outcomes that we mentioned at the top of the podcast, like decreased opioid use and uh, safety? Yeah. So there were some secondary outcomes here. Almost every trial reported uh, opioid use. So we can talk about that. Unfortunately, none of these trials, except for maybe in their introduction section, mentioned delirium. So we can't talk about that as a primary outcome. Safety is an interesting one. So most of the trials will mention safety, but it's not clear that they really adequately reported harms. And we'll come back to that, I think, a little bit later. And Rory, what were the results of the systematic review? So there were nine RCTs that actually fit their occlusion criteria. Two of them looked at femoral nerve blocks, four looked at the three-in-one block, and three looked at the fascia iliaca block. And all these studies were pretty small, ranging from 33 to 154 patients, and all of them were imperfect. Imperfect. What do you mean by imperfect, Rory? So most of these studies had what the authors termed moderate to high risk of bias, with the biggest issue being a lack of blinding. The results of the studies were actually too heterogeneous to do an appropriate meta-analysis. So the results had to provide a descriptive review only. The blocks were, were performed by emergency physicians in only five of the nine studies. Okay, wow. So only about half of the studies were emergency physicians and the other half anesthetists, yeah? Yeah, right. And only one study actually used ultrasound for guidance where five relied on landmarks and three used a nerve stimulator. That, that sounds like a pretty big problem that, that more than half the studies just use landmarks and there was only like one study that used POCUS. I mean, we know that there's plenty of anatomical variation when it comes to the precise location of the femoral nerve in relation to the vessels and that not using POCUS would probably increase the chances of complications related to injecting the analgesic into the vessels, which of course has major cardiotoxic effects. You'd think that in 2018, there'd be an expectation to always use POCUS for these blocks, right? Yeah, I think I think it also probably might have hurt the actual efficacy outcome where, you know, without POCUS, you can't actually see where which compartment you're in, if you're getting around the nerve, if you're under the fascia iliaca and so forth. And I'll just tell you, based on antidote, I started doing this right out of residency and I, I was probably successful between 80 and 90% of the time. And then I started doing it with ultrasound and I think I'm now successful 100% of the time. So I do think that ultrasound makes a big difference here. Once you start doing it in ultrasound, all three of these techniques kind of blend together because you actually seize the nerve and you kind of move lateral to it, get under the fascia iliaca and then kind of work your way around the nerve with the anesthetic. So the big outcomes, did did they decrease pain in these studies or what? Yeah, so pain was better in the nerve block group in eight of the nine studies. Less opiates were used in the nerve block group in eight of the nine studies. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. What about the safety profile? Did they did they talk much about the safety? So no studies reported any life-threatening complications and some increase in minor complications due to the nerve block. But the authors thought the methodology of the studies was poor and complications certainly could have been underreported. All right. Well, we'll get into the details of safety a bit later. Justin, anything worth discussing in terms of the individual RCTs? 
We could probably go into a lot of different details. I've read them all through now. We could run through each one individually, but I think the honest truth is we just sound very, very repetitive. There is one more RCT since this review came out, but the results are basically the same. If people are really interested in the details or if you're going to study this yourself, there will be a full detailed write-up that we can put up on the website or on First 10 EM. So I think... We're right. The literature here seems to be pretty consistent. I think if you look across these studies, pain seems to go down if you put a nerve block in, which makes sense. Opioid use seems to go down. Those are statistically significant results. We might want to talk about the difference at some point between clinically and statistically significant uh, results because the differences aren't super. They aren't dramatic, but we can probably talk about that in our, our summaries a little bit more. Wait, Justin, how about we go over the clinically significant differences in pain scores, opiate use, et cetera, now? Especially when you're when you're dealing with pain scores um, and other continuous variables, you really have to differentiate what is a statistically significant difference from a clinically important difference. And, and what I mean by that is because you're using a continuous variable, very small differences in pain scores can come out to be statistically significant. But whether a patient actually notices a difference in their pain is something entirely different. And this has been looked at for various scores. And what it comes out to is somewhere around from a zero to a hundred score, somewhere around 12 to 15, some people would say 13, is the area where a patient can actually differentiate a change in their pain. And depending on the power of a study, you can have a score that is less than that. So you observe a a change in eight to nine on a pain scale, which is statistically significant, but that doesn't actually mean that the patient actually noticed any difference. Yeah. So maybe this is one of those times that we should jump in specifically to NRCT at least to give us a sense of what this this actually looks like in these trials. So I'll, I'll pick out the most recent RCT. It's also the biggest. It wasn't in the systematic review, which is UNEBI in 2017. Uh, this is an RCT of 266 patients. And in this trial, statistically significant, the pain went down after a, a nerve block. But the baseline pain scores here were only three out of 10. And so there, although there was a t- statistically significant decrease, it only went down to two out of 10 after the pain score. And if I wanted to be super critical, that is less than that clinically significant difference. It was only a change in one out of 10. But it's interesting because how you measure pain is actually pretty complicated. If you wait too long, almost everybody's pain goes away. But specifically in these trials, hip fractures are interesting because when you're lying there perfectly still, the honest truth is patients don't complain about a ton of pain. But if you have to move the patient at all, if you have to put a Foley catheter in, if you have to move them to a new stretcher, or if they just toss and turn in the night, that's when the pain really hits. And in this study, they very specifically only measured the pain when the patient was at rest. So yeah, their baseline pain scores were not that big. But even though that there was a only a one point difference in the pain score, I actually still think there was a clinically important decrease in pain if you look at these trials. And you can get a little bit of a sense of that because 80% of the control group required IV opioids. Only 40% of the nerve block group required IV opioids. So what that's telling you is that when patients are tossing and turning in, in the night, they're not ringing their nurse. They're not asking for morphine o- overnight. So it is a, it's a bit of a complicated one that even though the clinical difference is small, I still think there may be an artifact there in terms of the way that they're measuring it. Right. I mean, it speaks to the whole concept. Is a pain score the best way to measure pain or are there other functional outcomes like the amount of other activities a patient is able to do or the amount of other pain medications used and so forth that are better markers of true pain? 
And that leads us very perfectly into the into the big question here, because honestly, none, none of these patients are getting out of bed, right? They, they're stuck there until surgery. But the one thing that everybody always talks about is these are elderly patients getting opioids. They're at high risk for delirium. So what I would love to have been able to a- answer from these questions is, did a nerve block decrease a really important outcome like delirium? And we have no idea. None of these studies reported it, unfortunately. I do understand that there's a trial ongoing in Toronto right now that will give us a better answer to this. But I think the best answer we have right now is that nobody reported on it. We just don't know. Before we move on to our discussion on the safety and harms of regional nerve blocks for hip fractures, here's Anton Nikolain with this month's EBM bomb to help sharpen your critical appraisal skills. This time, it's on blinding. Hi. It's Anton Nicklein again with another EBM bomb. Today, we're going to be covering blinding. Blinding is the concealment of group allocation during a study and comes in a few different flavors. In a clinical study, there are a number of groups aware of the treatment. You have the patients, drug administrators, data collectors, and data analysts. Any of these groups can be biased. A double-blinded study usually refers to the blinding of the patient and treatment administrator, but the term is actually ambiguous, and it can mean the blinding of any two groups. It's important to read an article carefully to know who was blinded, how, and whether it was successful. Blinding is important in studies to reduce ascertainment and performance bias. People have preconceived notions on whether an intervention will be effective. Best example of this is the placebo effect. When comparing a drug versus a placebo for pain relief, the simple act of thinking you know what the medication administered will do can change the patient's or reviewer's perception of the pain relief effect. This can even include how the medication was given. Pill, IM, IV. It's important to keep these things blinded from as many study groups as possible to try and truly ascertain if an intervention alone is effective. And that's been your one-minute EBM bomb. All right, so we know that there's quite a bit of harm with using big doses of opioids for these kinds of patients. What about the harms when it comes to using regional nerve blocks? What did the RCT tell us about safety? Yeah. So Anton, you know, in an ideal world, we should probably be able to get a sense of the balance between benefit and harm or efficacy and safety just by looking at the RCTs, right? Because that's what they do. They randomize patients to get either get the treatment or not. And we should just know if it's better for them. But for, for a number of different reasons, it's a general EBM rule that RCTs tend to underestimate harm. And there's a number of different reasons for that. So number one, they're probably just not powered for rare harm events. So in these studies, you know, we got 50 or 100 patients per study. You're just not going to see a seizure or a local anesthetic systemic toxicity actually happen. You only need one or two patients to have a really bad outcome, like a a systemic toxicity uh, in order to make this not a good option for, for our patients. The other thing that RCTs sometimes do is that they just pick healthier patients or they'll have something like a run-in period where patients with adverse events are excluded from the trials. I didn't see that here, but the biggest problem, the biggest reason that RCTs tend to underestimate harms is they might just not look. You know, it's pretty expensive and it's hard to record every single clinical outcome. And I think that happened here because a lot of the studies don't even mention harms in the results section. So the, the honest truth is, although RCTs would probably be the ideal way to get us a really good idea of harms, 
most of the time when I start thinking about harms data, I start turning to the observational trials. Now in observational trials, we can't specifically tell cause and effect, but I think it's really important because it gives you a sense of what the harms might look like in a real world practice. So that's a really interesting point about looking at observational studies when it comes to safety and harms as opposed to RCTs. So are there any big observational studies when it comes to uh, regional hip locks for hip fractures? So unfortunately, Anton, there isn't one big database that's all femoral nerve blocks. So what we have to do is look at individual possible harms and consider basically all the different nerve blocks. So we're going to have a bit of a mix of femoral nerve blocks and other regional nerve blocks. So I think the best way to take it is just break it down into each individual possible adverse event, and then we'll just run through the best evidence that we could possibly find on that that topic. All right, go for it, man. So the first is local anesthetic systemic toxicity, also known as LAST. This is essentially the result of enough local anesthetic being absorbed systemically that central neurologic and cardiac effects are observed. Most commonly, this occurs when the anesthetic is accidentally injected directly into the circulation, but it also can occur with large doses deposited at the target site and then absorbed into the circulation. And the effects are essentially the drug sodium channel blocking effects. The symptoms include perioral numbness, anesthesias, restlessness, tenderness, and of course, seizures, hypotension, and death. And all in all, it's a very rare event. A few large observational data sets, not just femoral nerve blocks, but all regional anesthesia sites, anywhere from eight in 100,000 to about 30 in 100,000. And Rory, I'll tell you, so that, that's sites 2012 and Barrington 2009. I'm pretty sure by reading through those, ultrasound was not used in either of those big observational trials. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and ultrasound probably helps because, you know, especially for the cases where where you're actually directly injecting into an, an artery or a vein, because ultrasound obviously helps you avoid that. And in another study called Arambot in 2009, there was about five seizures in a little over 5,000 uh, landmark maze blocks and zero events in about 2,000 ultrasound guided blocks. Ultrasound looks pretty good. Yeah, again, this is not randomized data, you know, so obviously there could be some selection bias here, but it but it seems and it makes actual clinical sense that ultrasound is going to help you here. What about uh, Justin nerve damage? Um, you know, of course, we've talked about the dreaded intraarterial injection with cardiovascular collapse, but uh, there's a whole bunch of other potential complications. Let's start with nerve damage. Rare, not so rare. What does the literature say? Yeah, so this is probably the one that anesthesiologists are most scared about. Putting the needle right into a, a nerve, damaging the nerve directly or injecting into the nerve would all be really bad things. But I think the good news is the observational literature tells us that this one is also pretty rare. Uh, I found one large systematic review, Brol 2007, that said the rate was about 0.3% for femoral nerve blocks, which was lower than other peripheral nerve blocks. All peripheral nerve blocks was about 3%. If, if you look at, there's a bunch of observational data here. It ranges somewhere from 2 in 10,000 all the way up to 4%. Now, 4% sounds really high to me, um, and it's a little bit scary. But I think what you have to remember is the definition here of nerve damage is just any kind of neurologic symptoms one month or six months after the, the nerve block was done. 
But you have to remember, these are patients with hip fractures who undergo a pretty traumatic surgery. And because this isn't randomized data, we don't know whether that nerve damage is from the nerve block or from the original injury itself or from the surgery or for something else that happened over the course of their, their hospital stay. What I do know is that if you just look at general surgery, surgery data, there's a large observational data of just all patients undergoing orthopedic surgery somewhere between three and 4% of those patients have ongoing neurologic symptoms, even if they didn't get a femoral nerve block. So it's possible that we're not causing any harm at all. But I think if you piece this all together, there's a small chance, but it's going to be rare, one in a thousand that you might do any damage to the nerve. And again, if you do it ultrasound guided and you know you're nowhere close to the nerve, it should probably be lower than that. All right. So that's a little bit about nerve damage. How about uh, other side effects? Anything else, Rory? Yeah, there, there's a few other minor side effects we can talk about, including arterial puncture and venous puncture and minor infection. And again, these are all pretty rare, somewhere around one in a thousand to two in a thousand. And again, I think using ultrasound will actually reduce these even further. And there's a bunch of other weird and, re- and wonderful things. You know, there's been case reports of retroperitoneal hematomas or psoas abscesses. The one I hear about a lot, if you just talk to people, people put in this nerve block and then they see a decrease in their blood pressure. That actually didn't come up in any of the studies that I could find, but there's a hypothesis that maybe if you've given somebody a lot of opioids and then you block their painful stimulus, you might get some unmasking of that opioid. The honest truth is I can't give you an evidence-based answer based on any of the studies that I could find. What about the situation where the patient might actually have a compartment syndrome along with their fracture and you put in a hip block and that masks the compartment syndrome, and now you've missed a compartment syndrome, which of course is a total disaster. Rory, what do you think about that missed compartment syndrome with a, a hip block? Yeah, I think at least in the U.S., this is one of the big reasons for getting pushback from our subspecialties. The fear is exactly what you said, that we we lose our clinical exam and so we won't be able to diagnose a compartment syndrome. And as far as I can tell from the data, this is a case reportable event. Most of these case reports occurred after surgery and not prior where, where we're actually doing the nerve block. But either way, the rate of compartment syndrome following an isolated hip fracture and a nerve block masking these symptoms is very, very rare, so much so that it's impossible to find in the literature. So we've talked about the systematic review. We've talked about a little bit of the observational studies in terms of harms. We've talked about the risks and benefits otherwise. Uh, What do you guys think? Should we be doing hip blocks? Uh, would you want it done on you if you had a hip fracture? I'm hoping you guys aren't like taking massive doses of steroids every day and break your hip at, at your young ages. But uh, let's say you had a hip fracture. Would you want this done on you? I, I think if you have a patient with an isolated hip fracture that you're having trouble controlling in other ways from pain, I think this is certainly a reasonable thing to do. You know, before I read this actual data, thoroughly, which we did prior to this podcast, I actually thought the data supporting this was stronger. Um, The studies were were small, and there's a lot of um, bias that can be easily injected into them. Very few of them actually had a placebo-controlled trial. I think that all being said, they all show a pretty consistent decrease in pain, and especially early on. So I I think when the patient comes in, and you know they're going to be moved around throughout early in their stay to get an x-ray, to be transferred from one gurney to the other, transferred from the ED to the floor, I think a nerve block at that point is definitely something that that would be important. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think if I had a hip fracture, I'd probably want this done on me right now, but this is not anywhere close to a done deal that we know for sure. Uh, so I think clinically speaking and anecdotally speaking, this probably helps patients. But if you look through this evidence, it's it's a bit of a mess. But the honest truth is, if you look at through the evidence for almost anything we do in medicine, it's a bit of a mess. And you could compare this, for example, to there are not there are ten RCTs here. Compare that to thrombolytics for stroke, which was one of our favorite topics here, right? There there were eleven, but in there you saw a bunch of harm, a bunch of negative trials, and one positive. What I like here is even though the trials aren't perfect they're all pretty consistent. So I think you're going to see a decrease in pain. Now, if it's a small and subclinical decrease in, in, in pain, then the harm could outweigh, outweigh the benefit. But at least out of all these trials, there's a fairly consistent trend here that this is probably going to decrease pain. I, I expect my patients to use less opioids on these. But the honest truth is morphine is a pretty safe me- medication. So the question is whether you really should be completely trying to get away from morphine uh, in these patients. And, and, and it's not sure. So in the face of uncertain evidence, my answer is I still do this routinely on every single one of my patients. But if a large RCT came out and showed there was clearly no benefit in a good methods trial, that would probably overweigh everything that we have so far. Yeah, I wonder that if you know if we had really good protocols for giving morphine in the elderly um, and we dose the morphine really well, or maybe we had self-administered pumps in the emergency department, you know, whether that would really be so much worse than doing a hip block. And that might be what actually turns out to be. I, I think the the one promising part of a hip block here is the fact that in between movement, you don't have much pain. So dosing opiates becomes fairly difficult, right? Because if you dose them for their resting pain, when they actually move, they're still in a whole lot of pain. If you dose them from the pain when they're actually being moved or they're moving themselves, then when they're resting, they end up stop breathing on you. Yeah. And I think you hit it in, in, entirely. So w- with opioids, you have to redose them. And these patients go to a floor where it's six to one nursing. My one dose of bupivacaine lasts them all night long, right up into the point where they meet the anesthesiologist and go in, in into surgery. Uh, and again, it's an- entirely anecdotal. But when I started uh, doing practice and wasn't doing a lot of these, patients seem to be up ringing that uh, alarm bell every couple hours asking for the morphine as they tossed and, tossed and turned. I now see patients sleeping all the way through the, through the night. I'd love to see a trial that can confirm that. But I do think the long acting of this uh, is, is a huge benefit. All right. So it sounds like generally speaking, we're, we're yay rather than nay. We would want this done on ourselves if we had a hip fracture. I want to move on a little bit to some practical stuff that's kind of in an evidence-free zone. So based on expert opinion and common practice out there, what do you guys think about the timing of the block? Do you think we should give a bit of IV fentanyl or morphine or hydromorph or even intranasal fentanyl or ketamine before the patient's whisked off to x-ray, where just moving them onto the x-ray table will almost certainly make them hit the ceiling in pain, and then doing the block after you've confirmed the fracture on x-ray? What do you think? So this is tricky. The number one thing is patients should not be going to x-ray without analgesics. That's just cruel because the most painful part of their entire emergency department stay is the positioning them in multiple different positions for multiple different x-ray views. I'm not so picky about which one it is. Right now, I tend to use morphine before they go over to x-ray. And when they come back, I'll do the block. But talking to a lot of experts, there are a lot of experts out there who seem to say, you know, a hip fracture is a really obvious clinical diagnosis. And so there are people who are just putting their block in even before they go, go to x-ray. 
I tried to dig up some evidence on this. If you put in a nerve block, there will be weakness to the quadriceps uh, muscle. So you will get some decrease in knee extension. Uh, and if you're using bupivacaine, it probably will last more than an hour. And there are some a bunch of scores and you probably aren't walking as well as normal, but there's just not good enough evidence to be to be sure. So if you misdiagnose it and you put it into somebody who didn't have a fracture, you could potentially have somebody at a higher falls risk. And maybe that would take somebody from not being able to go home to having to stay overnight in the hospital. But the honest truth is uh, after reading all this through, I'm probably going to put more and more blocks in even before they go to x-ray if it's a pretty obvious clinical fracture. Yeah, I, I think I think it's the the clinical exam that tells you when there's clinical uncertainty, I'd probably hold off and not do the nerve block. But in the clinically obvious hip fracture, I agree. I think doing it prior to x-ray, if logistically you can do it in your emergency department is the the thing to do. And the really good ultrasound guys tell me just confirm the fracture with ultrasound. I'm not sure I'm there yet, but that's a possibility, I guess. Yeah. So for the clinically very obvious fractures, you know, the leg length discrepancy and the externally rotated leg and they can't do a straight leg raise, it sounds reasonable to just do the block right off the bat. For the not so obvious cases, I think that if you're confident with your POCA skills for diagnosing fractures and looking for effusions, you could very easily confirm the fracture by POCUS and then go ahead with your block before the x-ray. I mean, what, what's the worst that can happen if your POCUS interpretation's wrong? Your patient will be blocked for a few hours. And if it's not a fracture, I think your patient will probably still thank you now that they're analgesed with your block. I think the important thing to note here is this is totally an evidence-free zone. It might be just as effective to give a dose of fentanyl prior to going over to the x-ray, but we're not exactly sure. Sure. Fair enough. Okay. So that's a little bit about the timing of the block. What about the question of who should be doing the block, the ED doc or the anesthetist? At our shop at North York General, we called down the anesthetist to do the block. But I got to say that at least half the time, they take hours to come down and some of them do them without POCUS. So I'm not really sure about how safe they are based on what we were saying before about the safety with and without POCUS. And we've also had a smattering of bad complications. I mean, on the other hand, they complain that we don't document very well. And I think they actually just really don't trust us in doing it. Justin, what do you think about who should be doing the block? Yeah, you know, I I have very strong opinions on this. I do worry at times in emergency medicine that we take too much on ourselves and we do way too much work for our, spe our specialists. But this is one of those times that this is a block that every emergency doctor should just be able to do. People worry about it for a lot of reasons, but this takes me less than five minutes to do. I don't have to wait hours for somebody to come down. I think it would take me longer to find an anesthetist on the phone than it would for me just to put in the block. And my skills with with ultrasound are at least as good uh, or if not better than any anesthesiologist in my hospital. Uh, so just get it done. It's a, it's a quick couple minute procedure and your patients are going to be in, a, in no pain before they go up to the floor. Yeah, agreed. I mean, this is definitely something that should be an emergency physician skill set. You know, I think with most procedures, it's a it's a question of competency, not a name badge that determines who should be doing it. Um, and then it's a question of convenience and whether we should actually take the time to build competency. It's really funny that the emergency physician is never the ideal patient to do it until it's or sorry, it's really funny how the emergency physician is never the ideal physician to do any procedure until it's 4 a.m. and someone else doesn't want to come in. Yeah, I mean, assuming that you can do it in five minutes, I, I agree that the eMERGE doc should probably do it. But let's say you're in a single coverage place, it's really busy, it might take you 10 or 15 minutes 
is it preferable in a place where you might be single coverage and it's really, really busy just to offload it to someone else? I don't know. I, I think I think maybe it depends on on your shop. Uh, it depends on your skills, as you were saying, Rory. Really, I think what it comes down to is whoever can do it in a timely manner should be doing it. And if that happens to be your anesthetist, then great. If it's not, then probably the emergency doctor should do it. Yeah. I mean, medicine should always be a team-based game. And the answer is always, it depends. So you have to know what your local system is like, but this is one of the answers that I can actually give you a pretty good evidence-based answer. So they measured the time to block in a bunch of these studies and it was always five minutes. There was one trial where it was a little under 10 minutes, uh, eight or or nine minutes, but this is a very quick uh, block to get done. There was even one trial where it was paramedics doing it in the field with ultrasound. And I think it took them uh, six or seven minutes in that trial. I don't have that one in in front of me right now, but this is a five to 10 minute, minute block based on the evidence. And in my practice, once you do a bunch, it's it's much quicker than that, unless you're working in a place where you can't find the ultrasound. So it's five to 10 minutes after you have the equipment there, uh, which I don't think should be the doc's job most of the time. When it comes to the specifics of using POCUS for this, I did ask Rob Samar, the brains behind EM cases, POCUS cases, this question on minimizing complications. And he made some interesting points. First, that we should use POCUS to visualize the needle tip at all times. You know, sometimes we take the focus off and put it on again, you know, and if that needle tip is lost, you got to stop advancing and find it or, or I'll start over. Second, you need to remind yourself always to aspirate before injecting to ensure that you're not in the artery. Third, to have an assistant with you, if you can get one to ensure that you can hold the probe and the needle and the assistant can aspirate and adjust buttons on the focus machine while you're doing that. In addition to documenting the procedure well, you know, write the time and the date on the patient's leg to ensure that when the patient goes upstairs, they don't get a second block because it wasn't documented well. That's happened at our place as well. And finally, as you guys mentioned, to have intralipid therapy nearby in the rare event that you inject a big bolus of bupivacaine or rapivacaine into the circulation. And I think, you know, the evidence here isn't perfect, but I think ultrasound guided nerve blocks are just one of those skills that emergency docs should have. I can't tell you the number of abscesses, the number of burns, the number of uh, fractures that I've been able to manage without sedation and with perfectly comfortable patients. But it is something that requires a little bit of training. But if you're just looking online, our our good friend Jacob Avila has a lot of nerve block videos on his five-minute Sono site. And there's another excellent site called NYSORA, N-Y-S-O-R-A, which is uh, a regional ultrasound-guided anesthesia uh, website uh, that is definitely worth looking up because I think this is a skill that all of us should have. I think, you know, for this podcast, uh, speaking to the bigger question of, of what do we do when we have imperfect evidence? Um, and I think it, it obviously depends on the evidence and it depends on the question. Um, in this case, you've got a disease process that can be quite painful and difficult to get acceptable pain relief using oral or IV medications. And so a nerve block is a nice thing to add. Using anecdotal experience with nerve blocks, you seem to have quite a big effect. So the question the evidence gives you or the question you'd like it to answer is, is this a placebo effect? Is what we're doing just helping the patients because we're doing something to them and and, and they have an expectation that it's going to work? And then the next question you'd like to know is, how long does this last and does it create any complications that I don't see during the patient's stay in their emergency department? And I think for those questions, we don't quite have the evidence yet to answer that appropriately.
So, so far in this podcast, we've looked at some of the evidence on whether regional nerve blocks reduce pain, whether they decrease opioid use, and whether they're safe compared to standard pain management. And in all three of these, hip blocks look pretty promising. So now let's turn our attention to the practical application of the evidence and how best to actually implement doing regional field blocks for hip fractures for your ED. So to help us with this, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show Dr. Jacques Lee, an emergency physician and the director of EM research at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. You might remember him from the EM Cases episode 34 on geriatric emergency medicine. He's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and an associate editor of CGEM. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thanks, Anton, for the invite. Great. So I understand that you've got some standardized kits and training for hip locks at your shop. But before we get into the ingredients to address the barriers and maximize the success of implementing these hip blocks, I just wanted to ask you a few questions where we don't really have much evidence, if any, to guide us. So first, in your opinion, should we be doing the block before the patient gets whisked off to the radiology department for their hip x-ray, just based on clinical suspicion? Or should we be giving a dose of fentanyl or morphine or ketamine so that they're pain-free for their x-ray, and then do the hip block after we've confirmed the diagnosis on x-ray? What's your take? Yeah, it's a great question, Anton. I think a lot of us think uh, it's pretty obvious when a patient has a hip fracture, and the only evidence I could find was a paramedic study. And basically, out of 30 patients with suspected hip fractures, only 20 of them ended up having a hip fracture. So first thing is you might not be right. And the second thing is that the hip block takes away motor control and that patient won't be able to walk. So what I'd say is a bottom line, listen, if the patient's got excruciating pain, they've got a shortened externally rotated leg and they're not going to be able to walk either way, you know, whether it's a bad bruise or a, a fracture, then yeah, I think there's little downside to going ahead and giving the block. You know, I think in, in other cases, you may want to have a risk benefit a discussion. It's going to vary case to case, but uh, you know the bottom line is uh, we may not be as accurate at identifying fractures clinically as we think we are. All right. So suffice to say that if it's totally obvious, excruciating pain, it's reasonable to do the hip block before the X-ray. In most other cases, it's probably better to give a short-acting opiate like fentanyl. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. So next. How do you suggest we minimize the complications for regional nerve blocks? Is there anything that you can do when you're implementing this in your ED that can make it a safer procedure? Yeah, I think, you know, 100% again, doing it under ultrasound guidance, right? That's, that's really important. And I'd say two, standardized training. So I think if you're implementing it, you know, rather than letting people look it up online and teach themselves, you know, like doing a little bit of standardized training is something where you can get everybody doing the block as safely as possible and not developing any bad habits, right? You know, in terms of safety, while it's really unlikely, there is the possibility of injecting bupivacaine into the femoral artery or vein. Being aware of the antidote for lidocaine toxicity, intravenous lipids, you know, and having a plan for administering it. Because if you do have one of those rare cases where there's a, a last syndrome, uh, they're going to get sick pretty fast and um, you should be able to get some interlipid into them very quickly and get them on a cardiac monitor. 
Absolutely. Bag of intralipid with your regional block kit, probably a good idea. Now that we've gone through this, a little bit about the safety and when to do the block, let's move on to actually implementing the protocol. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your protocol, how you implemented it, and how you think we can maximize its success? Right. So it started, of course, in a, in a randomized clinical trial. So, you know, that gets you developing things in a kind of a controlled fashion. So what we did was we developed standardized training. Um, everybody who was doing the training, they had a little competency test at the end. This doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, it's like a checklist of essential steps, you know, that you're observed doing it. And uh, then we developed a kit and one of the great things about the kit is it's also a bit of a instructional aid because all of the things you need to do the block are put into the kit in the order you need them. So I always tell our team, it's like, you know, don't be like a toddler and empty it out on the table. <laughs> um, and then the last thing we did is we have laminated procedure cards to give you a reminder. Most full-time eMERGE docs see maybe four to eight hip fractures a year. So it's going to be weeks to months in between doing the procedure, right? You know, so you might need a little reminder. So we've got these laminated cards that uh, help us remember how to do it. And yeah, once you've got the procedure, once you've got the kit, coaching is really helpful, you know, like basically people with more skill and experience at, at it, you know, if they watch you do your first one or two. So we kind of developed this whole rollout procedure so we could train the entire staff uh, that we could have kits available for people to use and people had been trained in a pretty good method and we checked their competency before they went free range. The other thing about it is once you've done a successful block and you have that experience with the patient having just excruciating pain one minute and like five minutes later being completely pain-free, that's probably one of the most important factors that's going to get you motivated to do this procedure. Might add, everybody is worried about time and emergency. We showed that, you know, in over a hundred blocks, including people who are doing it for the first time, the medium time to do the block is 15 minutes. And so 15 minutes from the time you crack open the kit till you put the Band-Aid on the groin. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Lee, uh, for your insights uh, into the practical applications of, of hip blocks. If you want to know more details about Dr. Lee's kit uh, so that you can develop one for your ED, we'll have his contact information on the blog post that goes along with this Journal Jam podcast. And Anton, also, we've been working on kind of developing a kit that we can share with uh, any ED that's interested in adopting regional anesthesia in uh, hip fractures. So stay tuned. In the next three months, we hope to have something really... Uh, nice finished product that we'll be able to share widely with people so they can get uh, doing more hip blocks in their hip fracture patients. Sounds great. The studies were actually too heterogeneous. The studies were actually too heterogeneous. The studies were actually too heterogeneous. 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 <laughs> can't do it. We knew I was going to show There's probably about six different ways of saying that word. And I can't do either one. <laughs> I hope we have an outtakes uh, section for this podcast, please. <laughs> All right, give it another shot, Rory. The studies...
the studies are actually too heterogeneous to. <laughs> <laughs> 